Welcome to another positive podcast where we'll be interviewing a remarkable person who will be sharing with us some very insightful and helpful information on mental health in today's world. But first, a bit about Rabbi Taub, so even though he really does not need any introduction. Rabbi Shays Taub has delivered Torah lectures and classes to audiences on six continents. He writes a popular weekly column in Ami magazine and is the author of the best-selling book, God of Our Understanding, as well as several groundbreaking works on Tanya, including the Tanya map teaching tool, the Soul Maps curriculum, and the audio series mapping the Tanya. Most recently, since COVID, he has held many classes and workshops, including an incredible in-depth study of Sharabi Tachan on the essence of Chassidus, how to work on yourself, and the very fascinating how to answer any questions. All these classes can be found on his website, soulwords.org. And he currently serves as scholar-in-residence at Chabad of the Five Towns in Cedarhurst, New York. So, Rabbi Taub, first of all, thank you for taking the time to talk with us, to talk with me today. And I'm going to get right into it. My first question I have is probably a question that many people have, or all people. Why, oh why, does Hashem give people mental health challenges? You know, one might make a case that it's to challenge those around the person. But what, what about the person himself? Why do they deserve to have this pain? And in addition, it's very clear, at least to me, as it's seen in our communities, Chabad and other Frum communities, that the Frumkite mental health and addiction problems are present and sadly on the rise. It feels, and I could be wrong about this, that as recently as 20 years ago, this simply was not as big as an issue. You heard occasionally of instances of kids choosing a different path in life or going off the derech, as well as addiction and mental health issues, yet now it seems to be everywhere. And I recently did a podcast about mental health and addictions with uh, Mendy Barron, and as a result, a number of people reached out to me from, from schools talking about how there are students as young as ninth graders who are getting high and drunk every day. In one instance, they even shared a story where there were girls snorting lines of white powder of some sort. It seems to me that things are a little bit out of control. And I'm curious, is is that your sense as well? And what would you ascribe this to? Now, I know I gave you a lot of different questions here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. There's a lot on the table right now. Should we go, uh, should we proceed one by one? Yes, totally. Okay. I, I think the first thing you asked me was why, why, oh, why does Hashem give people mental health challenges? Yeah. Okay. So obviously a question like why does Hashem do what he does? That's, that's a philosophical question. And uh, I don't know if we can fully answer it. I think maybe a, another way of asking Another way of asking that question that might be more helpful is not why does Hashem do this to people, but what is the what is a a way a way of looking at this in a in, in, in so that it's not utterly crushing and defeating and debilitating. Maybe that's a better way of asking that question. Because yeah. I think that's what that question really is. It comes from, you know, a sense of being totally defeated. Like, what in the world is Hashem thinking? What possibly can he be getting out of this? Why, why would he do this? Uh, not that we really are asking for an answer 
you know, an explanation. It's more like, how can we not be utterly crushed by this? So if that's the way, I'm sort of like changing your question, but <laughs> that's okay. if that's the way you're asking it, you know, look, the entire creation of this world is for the purpose of testing us and challenging us. The fact that a soul has to come down into a body is already traumatizing. It's already, um, you know, a profoundly difficult experience. Even if, even if the soul will come into the body of a tzaddik and have a perfect upbringing and live a totally holy, wholesome life, the experience is still traumatizing. So I think we have to first start from the premise that life is challenging. Life is, life is full of experiences that really feel insurmountable. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be, be, be crushed by that. I don't know. Maybe that is crushing. Maybe, maybe just to, maybe, maybe I should tell you, no, no, it's not really supposed to be like that. No, for most people, it isn't like that. But you know, what am I supposed to tell you? I think everybody, look, we're in Gullis. I think there's pain in every family. There's pain in every individual's life. The only question today is, you know, the degree, you know, how much pain. So, what I'm basically saying is, until Mashiach comes, don't be so surprised that we have profound challenges. That's that's what we're here for. And uh, in other words, uh, maybe a way of saying this might not be comforting, but all this stuff—it's not a bug; it's a feature. Hashem is totally in control and knows exactly what He's doing. And somehow, in ways that I can't explain, this, these challenges that are happening now are very important, not important, they are essential to the process that needs to happen in order for, in order for the world to become what the world needs to become. Okay, so that's a long answer. I don't know if that uh, makes any sense, but it was a deep question, so... So it's not a bug; it's a feature. I, I yeah. that's like a slope, yeah. like a a line. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. It's not like oh no, there's a glitch. Something happened wrong. No, actually, this is what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be hard. Because we're supposed to fix it. And what does fixing it mean? Fixing it doesn't necessarily mean getting rid of the problem. Sometimes fixing it means thriving in spite of the problem. I think we all want to believe that, you know, there's some magic formula and somebody has it somewhere. You know, I've been the recipient of many of those calls from desperate people who are led to believe that there's some <clears throat> magic formula and maybe I have it. And, and the truth is, I don't think that there's, I don't think there's always a simple solution. 
usually the answer is not a one-time fix. Usually the answer is learning how to live with the challenge and accepting the idea that, you know, some people approach Aveda, I'll use a Hasidic term, you know, some people approach, approach Aveda as a noble thing, you know, a very, like a, a very spiritual thing, like a lofty thing. Like if you're a real, if you're a real, uh, Sadik, so then you would actually live life more than you would live life for more than just your personal fulfillment. You would become an Ovid, you would engage in a Veda, and you would perfect yourself. Yeah, that's how some people see it. But the reality is, for most people, a Veda was not a choice and was not a luxury. It was thrust upon them when they realized that it became life or death. It became life or death. There was no choice. So there's nothing noble about it. Um, you know, life becomes unmanageable. And I realize the only way I'm going to survive is I'm going to have to do the work. And I'm not going to change anyone else. I'm going to have to work on myself. And that work on myself means the spiritual work. I'm going to have to become more spiritual, more God conscious, more selfless, more service oriented. Whatever I think I've been up until now. It's obviously, it's clearly not enough because I'm not managing right now. And, uh, you know, my, my point is that the challenges, like I said, are not a bug, they're a feature. If not for these challenges, we wouldn't be forced to dig deep within ourselves. So, look, I want to tell you, if I were a Shem, I would be like the cool substitute teacher who doesn't even make you learn. I promise you. you, if I were running the world, nobody would have to do any of either. Nobody would have to grow. Nobody would have to, you would have no hardship. You'd have no growth experiences. I would just give free candy to everybody and I'd be the, the cool substitute teacher. But I'm not, I'm not Hashem, which is probably a good thing. And uh, the real Hashem gives us all types of challenges and Look, the only way to be challenge-free is not to come down to this world in the first place. Now that the world exists and, and your soul was born into it, there's going to be challenges. And, and, and the challenges are not, you know, they're, they're not a, a defect. They're not a, a glitch. They're perfectly chosen to force you to become what you can become. Even if it feels like your challenges will, your challenges will destroy you. <sighs> they're not meant to destroy you. They're meant to complete you. Another thing you said in your opening question, you made an observation. You think that there's more of this stuff today than there used to be. And I don't know. I don't know if it's true or not. I, I've never lived in another era. So I don't know. And I, I suppose there is research that's been done, I'm, uh, but I never studied it. You know, just to clarify, I never studied any of these topics. Everything I know is either from, I learned, you know, from, from a yeshiva training, I learned from Torah, 
or I learned it from firsthand experience being a rabbi to all types of people, including you know individuals and families who are going through all types of stuff. So, you know, if you ask me statistics and studies, I, I don't know that stuff. And I, you know, that's, it's not my job to know that. I'm not the, the clinician. I'm not the, the mental health professional. I'm, I'm just a rabbi. And the stuff that, that I'm trained in is eternal. You know, it's, it's true at all times and in all places. So you're going to say, is it worse today than it ever was? I don't know. But I know certain things are constant. Certain things are always true. And that is, it was always difficult to be in this world. They decided, you know, 2,000 years ago, the sages concluded that it's better not to be born. So it was always a rough ride to be down here. What the nature of that rough ride is, maybe maybe the details change, you know. You know, they in, in some generations it was the Inquisition, the pogroms, or the Holocaust, or poverty, starvation. Okay, so we have our own troubles, but there's always been troubles, and uh, I think we instead of instead of saying why me, like why me, why why did Hashem do this to us? Why is Hashem doing it to this generation? I, I, I know where those questions come from. I understand those questions. I'm sympathetic to those questions. But I don't think they get us anywhere. Because the reality is, this is our challenge. This is what we're going through. And now the, que the real question to me becomes, what are we going to do about it? You, know, you hear what I'm saying? It's like, I don't want to be dismissive of, of, of your opening questions. But like, yeah. you know, why does Hashem do it? I don't know. Is, is it happening more today than ever before? I don't know. Like all that stuff is like, I don't know. I don't know. And I know where it comes from. It comes from the, 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 the incredibly strong desire to normalize one suffering. I'll give you, I'll tell you what I mean. When people are going through hell, one of the things they ask is, well, have, have, have how many other people have this? And the, and the answer is like, well, what do you care? And what if you're the only one who has it? What difference does it make? Really, practically, it makes no difference. Emotionally, though, when we're going through incredible pain, we want to hear, we want to hear something that normalizes it, something that explains it, something that makes it like, okay, I get this. This is a thing that's happening in the world right now, and I'm just another one of those people that it's affecting. Okay, I get it. I can contextualize it, and it sort of makes it less scary. What I'm saying is. We don't need to do any of that. We don't need to do that because we can just skip that whole process and say, you know what? I don't know why it's happening. I don't know if it's happening more today than ever before. All I do know is it's happening to me right now. <laughs> That's it. That's all I need to know. And then from there, okay, what am I going to do about it? Right. I think that's a good perspective. You know, sometimes also misery likes company, you know? Oh, if I know that there's 10 other people who are struggling with this, I don't feel as alone and it normalizes it. But yes, it's not necessarily serving us. That is definitely true. Yeah. Now there is strength in having a good support system, but 
not in the way that usually people want it. You know, people want to know there are other people who have that because, you know, if there are others, then my situation is not so crazy and so twisted and so perverse. Right. And uh, that's not really why you could be seeking out others. The real reason to seek out others is because sometimes, look, like I said before, this whole thing is about personal growth, spiritual growth. But sometimes the spiritual lessons that I need to learn, I can't learn them from the books. I need to hear them spoken to me from another human being. So when we stick together with other people who are also doing the work, and it doesn't matter what forced them into the work. See, I, I, I don't like the idea of I associate with other people who have my problem. I don't want to associate with other people who have my problem. I want to associate with other people who have my solution. Hmm. Now, maybe we all arrived at it because of the same problem, or maybe we didn't. I don't care. The main thing is I want to be around the people who are pursuing the solution because sometimes I will hear things from their mouths that I needed to hear, and I couldn't understand it until I heard them say it. There's an expression, God talks to us through other people. I mean, really, everything that we see in here, that's, that's basic Torah Sabal Shem that everything you see in here is Hashem talking to you. So, you know, if you keep your eyes and ears open and you remain humble and teachable, you can learn a lot. So, you know, some people teach us what not to do. Some people teach us what to do. Uh, you hang around the right people, you get you get to learn what to do. That's that's why it's important to you know to seek out support. Uh, support, yeah, yeah. You know, it seems to me that there are sensitive children that feel deeply. You know, are those who struggle more. You know, they feel yeah. it more. They feel their sadness more. They feel their happiness more. They're just deep feeling children. Yeah. And the more sensitive they are, the more they struggle. So yeah. I'm curious, what would you recommend to parents of sensitive children, how they yeah. can help these children, or what are some early preventative measures that parents can do to protect these children, and themselves for that matter, to guide yeah. their children away from, let's say, you know, trying to, we know the idea of that hole that everyone has inside of them, and we're all seeking to fill it, and we're all, you know, there's healthy ways, there's unhealthy ways, but how do we keep, how do we guide these children away from becoming, um, addicts or, or people who are just trying to dull their pain yeah yeah well i mean your question is a very high level question because the question is based on some epiphanies that i don't think most people have so i i and before i answer your question i just want to fill it in in case anyone's listening and they don't know how you got from point a to point b okay um, you obviously understand, and I understand, but I want to fill it in a little bit. There are some people, don't ask me how many of them there are, don't ask me what percentage of the population there are, I don't know and I don't care. There are some people for whom existence itself is the trauma. Embodiment is the trauma. Now, I would say for all of us, I, I, in fact, not only I would say, I did say 10 minutes ago that 
embodiment is traumatic for the soul. The only thing is the other, you know, I, you know, most people have other things going on in their lives to cover that, that trauma over. And so they don't feel that profound uh, dis disruption of, of being separate from God, separate from the oneness. They don't feel that because they have other things to distract them from it. And so those are called normal people, quote unquote. Then there are other people who feel it more profoundly and they have symptoms like, you know, being extra sensitive, uh, introspective, you know, that the feeling of terminal uniqueness. No one really gets me. Lonely in a crowded room. Always wanting to feel like a part of and instead feeling apart from. Um, and they might not, they probably would not articulate that as a spiritual condition, like, oh, this is the, the longing of my soul to be at one with, with, with its maker. You know, the, in fact, definitely not. People are not going to articulate it that way. Uh, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how people describe it. The point is the phenomenon of having that constant sense of discomfort, of existential discomfort. So it becomes like, well, what can we do for you? What's wrong? Should we turn down the air conditioning? Should we turn it up? Should we, you know, fluff your pillow? <laughs> what do you want us to do for you? You know, you don't like the, the plates we're using because they make a funny sound when the, when the fork scratches on them. We'll, we'll change the plates, right? And, you know, it's like, okay, or we'll cut the tags out of your shirt because they're, you know, they're rubbing you the wrong way. Um, yeah, yeah, you could, you could do that. Um, but I think a more holistic approach is to say, look, it's not any particular thing. It's everything. And to acknowledge that there are such people who are the sensitive people and, and life is an ongoing trauma for them. And as a result, they are going to be very, very interested in anything that provides numbness. Now, it could be self-medicating, or it could be through other distractions, like intense behaviors, you know, compulsive behaviors, high-risk behaviors, stuff that gets your adrenaline pumping, right? Um, drama, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, crazy stuff that just, you know, is a distraction. It's a, you know, a living soap opera. But the, 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 the common denominator is that regular life is too painful. So therefore, I have to do something to take the edge off. So I find a distraction, whether it's a chemical distraction or it's uh, other stimuli that can distract me from what I would otherwise be feeling. Once you understand that, then I, I'm, this is still, I'm giving background to your question to just so to catch people up to where you were at when you asked that. Yeah. Once you understand that, you understand that if a person has this underlying sensitivity 
and they have something that will numb the sensitivity, you can't take that away from them. That's their only tool for living. So, you know, if, if, you know, if somebody's drinking to have a good time, they'll probably grow out of it. But if somebody's drinking so that they can go to class or go to uh, their child's birthday party <laughs> or, you know, be able to make uh, a phone call that they need to make, right? So then, obviously, it's not about having a fun time. It's about this is my tool for living. This is what I need in order to function like the rest of you. I'm not trying to, I'm not partying here. I'm trying to function like the rest of you. So you can't take that thing away from them or you're leaving them without any tools for living, which is, you know, what, what I, I wrote in God of Our Understanding and it seems to resonate with a lot of people. It's not even my original idea. I've heard it said by many, many people, but the idea of, you know, for an addict, the addiction isn't the problem, it's the solution. Right. Right. That's what you find that works. Now, does it have side effects? Does it ruin your life? Does it kill you? Yeah, it does. But without it, I can't function. So what choice do I have? So now getting to your question, your question was sort of like, okay, what if we recognize preemptively that a child is heading down this path because we see that life is just, they feel things more poignantly, more profoundly, and they're going to have this need to distract and to, to escape. You know, is there anything we can do preemptively so that they, uh, so that they don't fall into self-destructive habits? Right. Right. Okay. So my, my answer to that is, I mean, you could see this even in a young child, you can see in a seven year old, a six year old that they're, they eat, they're easily, they cry easily. They're, they, yeah. you know, they're like you, like you mentioned, they have the, the things living is hard for them. Basic yeah. things that other people find to be, what is your problem? And their, and their brother or sister may say like, what is your problem? Like just go to mm -hmm. school or just learn or just eat dinner or why can't you eat that food or whatever it is. And they're struggling just to be. Yep. Yep. That's right. They're struggling just to be. And life doesn't get easier as you get older. It gets harder. It gets more complicated. And if I feel everything poignantly and profoundly, the more stuff going on in my life, the more pain. And, and by the way, it doesn't even matter if life is good. Maybe I have great parents and a stable life, okay? But stimulus is stimulus. And if all stimulus is overwhelming for me, so I can become overwhelmed and exhausted and, you know, just, just, from, just from nice things, pleasant things, right? So, so we return to the question. What is there to do preemptively for such a child? But I, I wanted to fill in the background because I, I promise you that the majority of people, I don't know, maybe a podcast like this is self-selective and the people who are interested in this topic have already learned firsthand everything right. here. But if you were talking to the general population, 
I guarantee you the vast majority of people would not even understand how you got from point A to point B. What are you talking about? Why it was sensitive children? What are sensitive children? Like, what does it have to do with the problems that you're describing? And what I'm saying is <laughs> it, it is a direct, I mean, again, I'm, I don't know the studies. I don't know the statistics. I, I actually don't care about them. Um, all my information is anecdotal and, and based on my personal experience. And I can tell you, that uh, these are the children that profoundly struggle. And okay, now that we're aware, now that we're aware of the issue, you asked a great question. Is there anything that can be done preemptively? And the answer is yes. And the answer is that what we should be doing for these children is really what we ought to be doing for all of our children. What we really ought to be doing for all of our children. And that is to give all of our children a true spiritual education. And I don't know if your listenership is particularly uh, observant or on the orthodox side of things. I, I, don't, I don't know. Do you have any idea who, 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 who is? You don't know. You put it out there. Yeah, exactly. Whoever, whoever comes to take from it and everyone can take from it. You know, it's, there's something to hear for everyone. So yeah. everyone can take something away. Okay. So for a moment, I'm going to speak to the more observant Jews who are listening. That's fine. Okay. For a moment, let me just say, I think we have a crisis that we have an overabundance of religious instruction without spiritual training meaning what we're giving our children is so heavy on ritual, which, look, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I'm not antinomian by any means. I'm not against ritual. I'm not against halacha, God forbid. Um, but what I do believe is that mysticism, spirituality, it's not a luxury, and certainly not for these sensitive souls. It's not a luxury. It is basic survival. So you have to give me these tools and you have to give them to me from a young age. So for instance, for instance, something that you might think as very lofty and very advanced to very, very uh, high level spiritual practice like meditation. I would say that's not high level. That's basics. You better be teaching your children to meditate from the, from the moment they become verbal. If they can understand language, you should be teaching them to meditate. Now, what does that mean? It means sitting on the floor and humming? No, it means when you teach them to say Shema, it doesn't just mean saying the word Shema. It means giving them the tools to be able to find that space within their own mind and within their own heart where they, on, on their own level, can think about oneness. They can try to find their place within that oneness and for anyone who says children aren't able to do this, that is so outrageously offensive. Why are you able to do it? Listen to me, Buster. God is infinite. So how much of God do you understand? Let's say you're the smartest person in the world. How much of God do you understand? Tell me what fraction of infinity do you understand, right? And the answer is zero because any fraction of infinity is not, there's no percentage of infinity because 
as much as you know, there's an infinite amount more that you don't understand. So you could be the smartest person in the world and everything you know is still nothing compared to what there is to know. So you don't know so much more than the little child. <laughs> compared to what there is to know about God, the smartest person in the world and the smallest child in the world are pretty much on the same level. So if an adult can think about the infinite, a child can think about the infinite too. You know the only difference? The difference is not how much of God have you understood, because the answer is zero. The, the question is how much of you has understood God? Each one of us has a capacity for understanding things. Some people are smarter, some people are less smart. Some people are more mature, more experienced, some people less so. So we all have different capacities. All I'm saying is, whatever your capacity, your capacity is, how much of that is full with God consciousness? And how much of it is full with other stuff? So we're not trying to figure out how much of God can we understand, because the answer is zero. The question is, how much of me can be geared toward understanding God? So if I'm a regular person, quote unquote normal person, I might spend 99.9% .9 of my mental capacity dealing with normal life and 0.1% of my capacity thinking about spiritual truths, if that, maybe even less. But if I'm somebody for whom the business of embodiment is an ongoing trauma, I'm going to have to devote a much bigger percentage of my mental capacity toward spiritual truths. And it's not a luxury. It's a, it's, it's a necessity. So I say we need to start the spiritual training young. It has to be profound. It has to be uh, based on personal experience. It has to be down to earth. It has to be accessible. We have to use stories. We have wonderful stories in our tradition that can bring, a, bring across deep concepts, parables that, that bring across deep concepts. And, and these are the tools. These are tools for living. These are simply tools for survival in this world. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it's helpful for these children to be made aware as a young age that that is what they're struggling with? That it's not necessarily the, the tag or the uncomfortable feeling or the feeling of disappointment, but rather that they're uncomfortable and that together we can learn skills and tools um, to help? Or is there... Yeah. Wait until they're old enough to say, oh, that's what's really happening here. Because I think a lot of times children can meditate. Children can um, do breathing exercises. There, you know, there are adults that can't do it and there's children that can't do it. Just like there's adults that can do it and children that can do it. So my question is, is, is there a benefit in explaining to them? Because sometimes they lack an awareness. Sometimes it's just yeah. the awareness that they lack. And when you kind of step back and zoom out and say, you know, this is what's going on. This is what's going on. But really, really what's happening here? It's your neshama and your body and explaining that to them. I wonder yeah. if that could be something that would be beneficial. Yeah, but you have to do it the right way because I would never want to label a child. Right. So I would never want to give them a diagnosis. You have such and such, and therefore we're, we're recommending you do such and such. What I would do is I would say it much more generally and which I believe to be the truth. Like I said, this should be done for all children. I would explain to them what's going on, but I wouldn't say it to them like, well, you're unique. 
Right. I would say, look, you're uncomfortable because of the tag in your shirt, because the, the plate, the, the, the fork scratching on the plate, because someone was breathing funny, because whatever. Okay. That's called stimulus, right? That we have senses, we, we, we touch and taste and hearing and smell and, and sight and those things. You know, I wouldn't say like, well, you are sensitive to those things. I would say that's, that's the human condition. Right. Figure out how to say the words. It doesn't happen to my brother. He's not bothered by it. My sister isn't bothered. My friends at school are not bothered. But yet, for me, it's so hard. Why is it? No. Children, children are well, smarter than that. They they say those things. Children yeah, but you know, it, you know, if 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 a fire engine comes by, a really loud fire engine right in front of your house, you know, it's really really loud, and you can't concentrate, and you're trying to have a conversation, and the fire engine comes by with the sirens, so nobody can concentrate, right? Okay, so there are things that distract everybody. So for him, it's the fire engine right in front of the house. For you, it's uh, you know the the squeaking of the drawer opening and closing. Yeah. Different people have you know have different things. Yes, that's true. And by the way, it's it's not it's not it's not in order to you know normalize it or make the kid feel better. It's in order to, to, to be authentic and to explain it accurately. We're trying to be honest here. Everybody's distracted. Look, anybody who has, is overstimulated and stressed out will seek escape behaviors. The only question is what, what degree of overstimulation does it take before they'll say, oh, I really need a drink. Or oh, I need to go veg out and just stare at Facebook for two hours, right? At what point? What 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 will, what will it take to drive them to that point? But I don't think it's so important figuring out well who has what threshold. The point is the experience of being at your threshold is a universal experience. Hear what I'm saying? So I don't care how early you 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 hit your threshold. Some people get up and they say ani and bam, they're already at their threshold, right? And for others, it only happens once a year if there's something exceptionally stressful, right? But it's irrelevant how much it takes, how much stimulus it takes to get to your threshold. The question is, when you hit your threshold, what tools do you have? And what self-awareness do you have? Yeah, and I, I hear that, I understand that. Um, so I'm curious, is like our schools, our teachers, what are their, like, what is their role in all of this with regard to teaching? I mean, we spend, we send our children for hours a day to schools and teachers, you know, they leave the house, let's say at eight o'clock, they don't come back till four. How much of, of this are they learning? In this regard, not only are schools not part of the solution, they are part of the problem. What can we do about that? <sighs> well, what we, what can we as parents, anybody who's listening that, that has, that has a child in a school that wants to make change. Yeah. The problem is that the parents are complicit. Parents are complicit because of fear, because social pressure, and we would rather do what's normal, what appears normal, than what's good for our children. And here's the thing. When, God forbid, things blow up, then we're forced to take the quote-unquote alternative path anyway, yeah. and everybody knows. Why couldn't we have taken the alternative path earlier? You know, God forbid to pull a kid out of school if he doesn't have a supportive teacher, right? God forbid, because if you pull him out of school, you know, it'll look weird. Well, what if he doesn't have a supportive teacher? And what if there aren't other options? 
are you going to force a kid who, let's say he's already highly sensitive and to be in, in, a, in an environment that's not emotionally supportive, trapped, eight hours a day, trapped with someone who's not emotionally supportive. And you're going to force him to be subjected to that. Um, why? Because you don't want him to, to look like he has issues. Trust me, the issues he's getting from that experience are going to come out in the end. And then you're going to be dealing with a much bigger mess. So I think we collectively need to be bigger advocates for our children. And, you know, we shouldn't feel like such captive customers. And if you're not getting the service, look, I got to tell you something. To a certain extent, I don't blame the schools because I could never run a school. Let me, I sound like I'm school bashing. I want to tell you, I could never run a school, never, okay? And I totally get why most schools are basically one size fits all. This is what we offer. This is what we do. I get it. The schools are underfunded, understaffed. So that's it. I offer what I offer. This is what we do. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't work for you, I'm sorry, we can't change it. I forgive them for that. I understand that. What, what I think needs to change is parents who say, well, the school is only offering one style. My kid clearly isn't benefiting from that style. But I'm going to force this square peg into this round hole anyway, just so, I don't know, so that we don't appear weird. Like, is it really worth that? Are you really, really think about it like this? Are you willing to sacrifice your child at the altar of social norms? Mm. I mean, to me, that's like no parent, when it's posed to you that way, no parent is going to say yes. True. And parents say, well, what do you want me to do? Pull him out. Well, who's, where is he going to go? What do you mean, where is he going to go? You're his parent. You take care of him. Well, I have to work. Why do you have to work? So you can pay tuition? <laughs> so the whole thing becomes this ridiculous, vicious cycle. Um, and, and in the end, by the way, you know, I can't afford not to work and watch my kid. Yeah, but so you're going to send them to a school where being unsupported is trauma. You're going to pay for that eventually a lot more than the missed work, a lot more. I mean, let's talk about the price that, that, that you end up paying First of all, the, the, the sleepless nights. I mean, how, how do you even put a price tag on that? How do you even put a price tag on that? But just your child's misery. Are you going to put a price tag on that? And then there's actual quantifiable expenses, the, 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 the doctors and the treatment facilities. And, you know, that adds up real quick, a lot more expensive than taking off a few years to homeschool your kid because you, you, you can't find the right fit and you're not going to force them into the wrong fit. So I, I just feel like I'm not here to, to, to bash the schools and to say that they should be doing anything different. I actually have very low expectations of institutions. That's just my general feeling. Um, institutions are not human beings. Humans have a heart. Institutions don't have a heart. So don't expect compassion from an institution. A human being, you could expect compassion. But institutions are machines, and they do what they do. And if there are some compassionate people within that machine, you're lucky, but don't expect it. You have to be the compassionate person in your child's life. You, you are your child's parent. God gave you a job. You have to be their advocate. You have to be their champion. 
Don't be on the side of the machine, be on their side. If the machine works for you, great. You have to be a user in this regard, be a total user. If the machine works for me, then I'll pay them money to offer their thing that they do that works for me and my kid. And the minute it stops working for me, I owe them nothing. There's no loyalty, they're just a machine. I'll be loyal to a human being, not to a machine, not to an institution. I'm saying these things in a very hyperbolic way and perhaps an overly intense way, just because I feel people need permission to act on this. So I just want to be really, really overly clear about it. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I've heard this, this exact scenario come up for many parents. <clears throat> and um, it's, if, if people were granted that permission, then they can make the choices. You know, you have to do what's best for your child. And it can't be one size fits all. Cannot be. And by the way, in one family, it could be one kid does very well in the conventional system. Another kid doesn't. And you're not doing him any favors by, you know, pushing him through. And not only that, not only could be two siblings don't have the same needs, one child may not have the same needs from year to year. Right. So it could be that this year, what the school is offering works for my child. Next year, it doesn't. And you have to be confident enough to say, yeah, you know, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not here to spare anyone's feelings. I'm here to protect my kid. The fourth grade teacher is great. The fifth grade teacher isn't. I'm not sending him to the fifth grade teacher. Right. That's, no, I'm sorry. I'm not here to spare your feelings. I'm here to save my child's life. Exactly. I want to just move for, um, you know, because of time, I want to go to a different uh, question, if you don't mind. Um, I hate interrupting you because I feel like there's so much more coming and I don't want to miss that. But so I've been hearing a lot about um, the idea of twisted parenting, Avi Fishoff, um, unconditional love, um, you know, radical love, I should say, total acceptance. I've heard it from many different, you know, people, different, you know, communities. The, the idea is that we, we understand that our children are in pain and in some extreme cases, we have to help this child and we have to um, do that by radically loving them, even if things that we don't understand, we don't agree with, they're not our values, you know, completely. And, you know, even in some extreme cases, you let the, the child move into your home and you get hit, you know, even if the child's not Shomer Shabbos or they have a girlfriend or all the things that you're uncomfortable with, you have to start to get comfortable with because you are like Pekuach Nefesh, you're saving this child, you need to help this child. And I've heard great stories from people that have had a lot of success with Avi Fishoff or Twisted Parenting, and I'm not about him per se or his program. My question is, is that I know that your approach is about absolute love and acceptance. And, and it's about showing this child that he's 100% accepted or he or she but how does this coincide with, um, let's say, the recovery program, okay? Where they will say that sometimes you need to specifically not give them what they want or not rescue them or not save them so that they can actually kind of not break apart first till they get better, but so that they can recover. It's like and that my kindness is expressed by my restraint. But how do these two concepts, because... To me, it sounds like codependency, this whole radical love and twisted parenting. And I'm, I'm hoping that maybe you could shed some light on the balance between these two things. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a good question. So first of all, let me just say, I'm not speaking on behalf 
of either of these approaches. Okay, I'm, you you describe two approaches. I'm not speaking on behalf of either of them. Okay, I'm speaking just as me. I don't see a I don't see a a, a real contradiction at all between them if if understood properly. Okay, I understand the apparent contradiction, but if you look deep within it, the contradiction falls away. Which is sort of like the definition of a paradox. Out of there, one definition of a paradox is a, a something that seems to be a contradiction, but upon further examination, it proves not to be. Okay, so one approach says love, all love, acceptance, get close to the child, whatever it takes. The other approach says tough love. Like you call it, limits, boundaries. Say no, don't be a codependent, don't be an enabler. So they seem like they're, they're at odds with each other. But I'll tell you why they're not. The recovery approach, which is very, I mean, it really, it, it, it's the origins of it from Al Anon, but it's has been developed since then, but it started with Al-Anon, which is like the, uh, the the program for friends and family of alcoholics. You know, it's like the the companion program for for NA for Alcoholics Anonymous. So most of these ideas they started the origins they started in Al-Anon, um, and then they were developed. But let's call it you know recovery from codependence. What is this disease? What is this pathology called codependence? What is it? It's not a behavior. It's a reason for a behavior. Just like addiction. Addiction isn't the behavior. It's the reason for the behavior. Right? The addiction isn't the thing that I'm doing to numb myself. The addiction is why I have this need to numb myself. And so, too, the codependence isn't a behavior. It's not the saying yes. It's why I say yes. So what we realize is in recovery from codependence that we're using kindness as the ultimate manipulation. We are more, um, we're, 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 we're more attempting, we're attempting to control people even more than someone who has a very blunt approach. Because we have this belief that if we'll just be sweet enough, we'll just be, I don't know, uh, we'll appease them enough, we'll earn their love, we'll earn their trust, we'll, we'll prove ourselves to them, and then they can't say no. They wouldn't dare break my heart after I was so kind, right? And of course, you know, it's a false causality because they're not trying to break your heart. They're doing what they do, you know? And so it's like you, <laughs> you're thinking, well, if I can just, you know, give them enough honey, then they're going to be able to take the honey instead of, uh, you know, instead of doing whatever they're doing, which they can't. They can't because like we just explained before, that's their only tool for living. So all your sweetness isn't going to, you know, it's not going to help. 
So they're going to break your heart, and then you're going to feel betrayed. You know, that's that's the the the, the hangover of the of the codependent is the betrayal. That's the hangover. It's like I did all this, and then you know, look what you did to me. The martyrdom, the martyrdom, right? Okay. So what happens is people realize that they're enablers and they want to stop. So what do they do? They stop the behavior, but they never really deal with the underlying motivation. They'll just stop the behavior. They'll just say, well, I know that I give in a really toxic way. So I'm going to stop giving. I'm going to say no all the time. I'm a people pleaser. So when I say yes, it's toxic for me. I'm going to become tough as nails. Well, you didn't really solve the problem. You just avoided it. You're kind of like a dry drunk. You know, a dry drunk, a dry drunk is this person still needs to drink. He hasn't dealt with his issues. He's just abstinent from drinking and he becomes more of an inconscionable jerk while he's sober than if he would just drink. You're like, drink already because you're so obnoxious when you're when you're dry. You haven't really recovered, right? You're just not drinking. And so that's sort of like a dry drunk of the codependent world, which is I haven't really ad addressed the fact that I use kindness as my my weapon is my way of manipulating people. Um, I just stopped being kind. Now I'm now I'm going to be tough. Well, let's 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 go deeper. Maybe you need to be able to get sober, so you can learn how to be kind in a way that's not toxic. It wasn't the kindness that was toxic. It was the attempt to control others that was toxic. And where does that come from? The attempt to control, the need to control, the compulsion to control others. And, you, and by the way, there, it, there's such great rationalizations for it. Because especially if you're a Jewish mother, well, what do you mean not control my child? Should I let them die? Right? So there's such compelling arguments why I need to control them. Um, and why it's noble. You know, it's like I'm doing a noble thing over here. Uh, so how do I let go of the need to control? Well, the need to control is basically comes from fear. Just like the addict is afraid of life, so the addict self-medicates. The codependent is afraid of life. So the codependent tries to use kindness as a sneaky weapon to control others to keep scary things from happening. But it doesn't. See. It doesn't even keep the scary things from happening. And, and what's probably even worse than that is it, it, it's a corruption of kindness because it's not even real kindness. It's not altruism. It's not for fun and for free. It's, it's manipulative. Every act of kindness comes with this price tag, this unstated price of now you owe me to not break my heart. Now you owe me to not give me another sleepless night. So the escape from that is to say, you know what? I need to address my fear. Now, there may be other ways of doing this, but the one that I know, the opposite of fear is faith. And when I put my loved ones in the hands of God, I don't have to put them there. They are there. But when I acknowledge that that's where they are, they're in the hands of God, and I no longer have to fear when I'm not fearing, then I don't have to get control. And when I don't have to get control, now I'm free to be truly kind.
Now I can be truly kind. So let's go back to the reconciliation between these two approaches. You know what's sick? What's sick is the codependent who's still running and rescuing because they still think that that's going to gain them control. It's a lie. It's a cruel lie that you tell yourself. But when you realize, no, my security, my safety, and my child's security and safety does not come from my rescuing behaviors. My child's security and safety comes only from God. And the fact that I'm providing them kindness is not as a tactic. It is not a tactic. It is not a bid to try to gain some stability or some control. No, it's not. It's not because I don't have that control. I'm being kind because God told me to love this child, nurture this child, protect this child. I don't control the outcome. I can't keep them safe. I can only love them. That's all I can do. And they owe me nothing for it. They owe me no I can't be betrayed. I'm unbetrayable. Because I'm loving you and you owe me nothing for it. If I'm loving you and you and, and, and you do something that keeps me up all night, you didn't keep me up all night. I kept myself up all night because of my lack of faith. So I know it sounds very, very, very harsh. And people are usually not on that level to be able to take that until, usually till burnout. Usually they come to a breaking point where they just don't have it left in them anymore to do anything else. So then they surrender. Yeah. Usually recovery comes after surrender. But you know, you could do it preemptively. If if you really, you know, meditate on it, you could realize the futility of trying to control reality through, you know, uh, manipulative people pleasing behaviors. And you could just initially just trust in God for your safety and security and for your loved one's safety and security. And once you do that, now you can be kind in a way that's totally not toxic. So in, in other words, let's put it very simple. Um, if my child needs something from me and I can do it with truly no strings attached, with no expectation that this will control them or, or prevent them from, from doing the next terrifying thing. That I'm just doing it to be a loving parent. And that whether or not it has any effect on them, I did the right thing. You know, real altruism. I did the right thing. Then you are free to do all the types of loving things that uh, that a person who's a, what I'm calling a dry drunk from codependency is not free to do. Let, let me elaborate a little bit more. When you're still a dry drunk from codependency, when you're still rescuing in order to in, make the person indebted to you, not only is that sick for you, it's sick for your child. You're, you're, you're involving them in a, in a disingenuous relationship. It's, it's, it's a, you know, the, the contracts, the agreements, all that stuff. That's all, those, those are games. Those are all games. Well, if we let you live in the house, do you agree to such and such? First of all, they can't. 
they can't agree to it. You know, if they could, they would have stopped without your leverage. Your leverage isn't going to enable them to do something that they that they could have that, that they couldn't have done on their own. If they could have done it on their own, they would have. They're not going to do it out of a sense of being indebted to you. The only thing you're going to do is compound their shame. So now they know they're betraying you, right? So not only is it toxic for you, it's toxic for them. But if you can truly say with no strings attached, I'm here to provide love because that's a parent's job and I expect nothing for it. That cannot do harm. Now, I, I, I'll, I'll say like this. I think that a lot of people don't get to that level. They don't get to that level. And that's why, practically speaking, for a lot of parents, there's, they get stuck at, at, at a second best, of a, a distant second best, far from, from an ideal situation, which is, I'll put it this way, the worst situation is they continue the manipulative uh, codependent, people-pleasing, enabling behavior. Okay, that's that's the worst situation. Running and rescuing the kid in, in, with, with a price tag attached to it each and every time and feeling betrayed each and every time. That's, that's, a, that's total chaos and drama and it just makes everyone twice as crazy. That's the worst. Better than that is just to say, no, I'm disengaging. No, you get nothing from me. Complete boundaries, that's it. At least there's some sanity there. At least there's some sanity. No, nothing. Sink or swim on your own, buddy. And that's actually more sane than the first scenario. However, that is so far from the ideal. The ideal is getting to the place where, and this takes real sobriety on the part of the parent to be really emotionally sober. There's emotional sobriety. The emotional sobriety to say, I'm going to do all these sweet things, but totally... I'll use the Hebrew term here, l'shem shamayim, for the sake of heaven, just because it's a mitzvah, because God gave me the mission to take care of this soul while it's here in this world. Okay, that's it. And they don't owe me anything, and I, I, I don't think I'm gaining any upper hand. Not, I'm not even gaining the right to feel betrayed when they go and they you know, disappoint me. There's no martyrdom, no martyr complex. That's, that's, the, that's the ideal. But I, I think a lot of people can't emotionally get there. So practically speaking, for a lot of parents in this situation, it's like, okay, so what do you want? You, you want option one, you want option two, or you want option three. And you just sort of settle on option two because it's more sane than option one. But it's so far from ideal. The ideal is to love the child, to support the child, to, to take care of the child. Clearly, the child's not thriving. Clearly, they're not thriving. And to take care of them, but to do it in a way where there's no manipulation, there's no price tag attached to it, there's no, uh, there's, the, 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 there's no sense of, on, on the part of the parent, that I'm, I'm entitled to anything because of this. So, you know, parents have to have, that's why I always say, you know, it, if there's a situation with addiction in the family, it's more important that the, that the non-addicts be in recovery. 
It's more important than non-addicts be in recovery. Um, but it's it's very hard, you know. The, the parents don't they don't see themselves as having a problem. No, I, I don't have a problem. My child has a problem, and I'm trying to learn how to deal with my child's problem. No, actually, you're not. You're not learning how to deal with your child's problem. You have a problem. It's your problem. You, it's your, you know, to go back where we started from. God gave you gave you this challenge. So, you know, it's not about your child's challenge. Your child is going to go through their challenge. You're going to go through your challenge. you got to be as healthy as you can be. So you can support them so that hopefully, you know, they'll have to choose it on their own, be as healthy as they can be. But it's, it's, it's all about each person. Really, in a word, it's about each person being as spiritually healthy as possible and relationships being as genuine as possible and uh yeah so anyways is that does that answer the question uh, it does it leaves me with a little bit few more questions but but what That's i'm hearing, what i'm hearing you say is that that codependency and like al-anon recovery programs those are like one level and there's an ideal and the ideal is to love unconditionally and to have that twisted. We, that's what's called twisted, but it's really not twisted if, if we could right. ideally get there. Well, I'm not even saying that Al-Anon only goes so high. I'm saying that the people who are truly successful in Al-Anon and other you know programs of recovery from codependence, you'll see that they have a soft heart and they're able to be loving. You'll see that. So it's not like, oh, you know, recovery from codependence only takes you to a certain point. No, actually, if you do it right, it'll take you all the way. It'll take you to the same conclusion that a program like Twisted Parenting will take you to. Interesting. I say they end in the same place. They end in the same place. If you do it right, you know, you have to distinguish between the program of recovery and the actual, you know, like the way it's practiced. There are a lot of people in the program, you'll meet people in the rooms who are in the middle of their journey and they're still or just starting and they've only gotten as far as just having boundaries and they haven't gotten to the place where their relationship with God is solid enough that they can open their heart again and they can be vulnerable and run the risk of being hurt again because they don't want to be hurt again. No way. That's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm tired of being hurt. Okay, fine. So you put up a wall and you can't get hurt, but that's not the ultimate. I hear what you're saying. Okay. Um, I don't want to keep you for too long. I'm going to finish off with one last question, even though I have so many and maybe another time we'll have the privilege to speak with you again. So, you know, you, if you had a platform and you probably do have a platform, I know that people listen to you all over the world to speak to, let's say the Orthodox community, the from community. Okay. With a message, on what we're talking about today, all these different topics, what would your takeaway message be? Like you could tell parents, this is your takeaway message. What would that message be? Uh, on this subject? Yeah, We've, we covered a m bunch of different subjects, but they all are all intertwined. Yeah. yeah. Takeaway message is 
that every single soul is different. Every single soul has a, a different story that it was sent here to, to live out. And being a parent is a, an awesome responsibility. It's to be a, to play a supportive role in that story. And we have to be our children's advocates. We have to provide them with every possible resource. Um, and at the same time, at this very same time, we have to realize that we're not in control. You know, it's, 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 that's, that's the tough uh, paradox. We have to work real hard to provide everything we can for them, the tools for living. We spoke about having tools for living, self-awareness, a relationship with God, all that stuff. We have to work so hard to provide that from, and to protect them from stuff like, you know, a, a school that's not the right fit, all the stuff that we spoke about. You have to do all that stuff, be your child's advocate, be their biggest advocate, their staunch advocate. And at the same time, with all that intense hishtadlos, to use the Hebrew word, at the end of the day, it's God's child and we don't control the outcome. So we need a lot of hard work and a lot of faith at the same time. But basic Judaism, really. But yeah. this forces us to take basic Judaism seriously. So much to process here, so much to think about. I have so many more questions, but I just want to th thank you for your time. I truly appreciate it. And um, I encourage everyone to check out soulwords.org for more inspiration, lots of podcasts, lots of learning. And um, if I can interject there, by the way, if you go to soulwords.org and you go to the topic drop down, there are classes on education. There are several talks there that I would highly recommend. Anyone who is interested in this type of uh, topic, I would highly recommend that you go to soulwords.org. I'm actually going to do it right now so that I can direct you. You go to the topic drop down. The first topic is education. You go to education, and I have some talks here. I'm just looking at the titles. Every Child is Special, Lifting Up Our Daughters, uh, Raising an Emotionally Healthy Siddhisha Teen, The Aleph of Jewish Education, The Soul of a Child, The Parent's Power, All of Our Children Are Beautiful, these talks, I would highly, highly recommend uh, to parents just as as encouragement for you, just to, to recommit yourselves on a daily basis to believe in your child and be your child's advocate. Again, to believe in your child and be their advocate. I love it. Again, thank you so much for your time, and I'm wishing you a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hopefully uh, this will benefit others.